We are at lesson 13 of the series on the church. We have one more lesson to go for the time being, and uh, that will be, Lord willing, next week. It is interesting in the providence of God how he orchestrates events uh, to, uh, to make the, the texts and the topics that we're dealing with pertinent. If you have been reading the emails from afar that I have been this past week, then you will notice the, uh, the things that were raised as questions as to how one does church. These came directly off of the emails that you and I were reading. It said, people are the church, not the building. Leadership is by elder rule. What should we do when we all get together? Uh, what is the gathering all about? What is the church gathering all about? Who should lead it? And then a question from one of those who had been reading the email was, uh, how do you practice the Lord's Supper and baptism? Well, this is about the Lord's Supper, and next week is about baptism. So it seems to me, providentially, those topics are sort of coming together. So my approach in this lesson is going to be this. I'm going to start out with a more general discussion of what we would call the meeting of the church. And then I want to zero in on what I consider to be perhaps the central element of that, and that is the Lord's table that we observe weekly, and I'll talk about that in some particular ways. If you haven't got any notes and you want some, raise your hands, and Ken's just more than eager to facilitate you there with some notes. Let's talk about some key scripture texts that, uh, that probably we ought to have in our minds. And I'm not going to read all of these texts at length. Some of those were read from 1 Corinthians 11 and from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But you remember the text in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which is describing the, the, the conduct of the early church just after its birth uh, at Pentecost. It says, They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Then when you turn to Acts chapter 20, you discover that Paul has come to Troas and um, he, on the first day of the week, the church gathers in verse 7 to break bread and Paul begins to speak. You remember that's the one. It always encourages preachers to know that people not only fall asleep, sometimes they even fall out of windows. And, And so this is the story about the young fellow that falls out and they, remember, take him up. Alive, and I assume that there was a miraculous event that took place in that. Then you see Paul later in chapter 20 speaking to the Ephesian elders, and the two verses that in particular I want to call your attention to are verses 20 and 27. In verse 20 of Acts 20, Paul says, You know that I did not hold back from proclaiming to you anything that would be helpful and from teaching you publicly and from house to house. Then again in verse 27, he says, For I did not hold back from announcing to you the whole purpose of God. So those two uh, passages in Acts 20 and in Acts chapter 2, and then the text that were read, 1 Corinthians 11, which pertains to the observance of the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which is talking about the church meeting and the conduct Uh, and the elements in that meeting that ought to be present. And then you have Ephesians chapter 4. He gave some apostles and prophets to build up the body for the work of ministry. 
And later in chapter 5, where he is speaking more of the mutual ministry, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that's taking place, and that very similar text in Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It didn't occur to me until later to include Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 23 through 25. But there it is talking about not forsaking the gathering together of the church and the mutual ministry of encouragement that is to take place in the context of that gathering. So those would be the principal texts that I can think of that you ought to consider as you think about the meeting of the church. Let's talk about the major components that are there or that were there in the New Testament church and I believe ought to be present in the the church meeting uh, as we gather together. And I'm going to emphasize this one a little bit more than I normally would, probably because in in our circle sometimes this one is de-emphasized. But it seems to me it is clear that there is the systematic teaching of the scriptures. If you want to use the word doctrine, that's that's great because that's the word that is used. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. And when you come to Acts chapter 20, you see Paul talking about the things that he taught them. He said, and I have I've taught you everything you needed to know. I take it, therefore, that there is something systematic and, and planned about Paul's, if you want to call it that, curriculum that he is laying out so that he could say that to them at that point in time. And also then uh, Ephesians chapter 4, where it's talking about apostles and prophets, pastor, teachers, and evangelists. And I would take it again, that on the second level, where it's not apostles themselves, but where it is the apostolic, the revelation that has come through the apostles, that that is the job of teachers. So there is an element of systematic teaching that is present, as well as, we will see in a moment, spontaneous teaching. Then there's the exercise of spiritual gifts. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 Peter chapter 4, it's, it, it's pretty clear to me that when the church gathers, that is the occasion where God has given different gifts to different men and that those gifts ought to be exercised in the context of the meeting. I do not mean to suggest that only those people who have those spiritual gifts and are performing that particular function should speak in the church meeting. I am saying that the church meeting is the context where those spiritual gifts will be utilized to the edification of the body. And then C, uh, worship around the Lord's table. It, it seems to me that that's just very clear, especially when you look at texts like Acts chapter 2, verse 42, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, they gathered to break bread, and 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Interesting to me that you have this kind of division 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is talking about the conduct of the church around the Lord's Supper when they have gathered. Chapter 14 is talking about the conduct of the church with respect to other things. So I take it that you have these two different elements, both the observance of the Lord's Supper and the ministry that takes place, uh, uh, believer to believer and from uh, gifted believers to the body, Uh, Both of those elements appear to take place in the context of the church meeting. Prayer is obviously another large element. You see that 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, 
where men are to pray and so on, and you see it in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. So prayer is a vital part of the church meeting. I'm just a little bit less uh, emphatic on giving, not because... This is the one that in most churches would have been first on the list that you'd be pounding on the pulpit about giving. But it seems to me that at least by inference you would conclude that there is the taking in of offerings. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of the week you are to lay aside uh, things. Now, it is possible that that means that you lay aside in your own bank account Uh, rather than put it in the offering plate. But one way or the other, you are preparing uh, a contribution that is going to be sent out. And and you obviously see in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, you see the church caring for one another. People don't claim their possessions as their own, but they share them with others. So it seems reasonable uh, to me to, uh, to, to conclude that giving was a part of the worship. And we have made it, as you know, we have made it a part of ours and I think without apology. Now, let's talk about the characteristics of the church meeting, at least as, as I understand it. First of all, there was one meeting. <laughs> Sometimes that sounds really good, doesn't it? I mean, the church... It seems like every night of the week sometimes there is something going on. They did not have the liberty to be coming to church all the time, especially the slaves and so on. And so the appearances in the New Testament, they met once, and they tried to cover within that, within the context of that meeting all of the necessary elements. I'm not saying they did not meet house to house in other ways for fellowship or Bible study, but the church gathered one time during the week. And generally, we would say it was in the evening of... Uh, let's say Sunday evening, not on the Sabbath, and that would be consistent with the resurrection of our Lord on the first day of the week. So one meeting, first day of the week, generally speaking in the evening so far as we can tell from Scripture. The whole church gathered. You see that in in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You see it in the exhortation in Hebrews chapter 10. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. But the whole church gathers together. The church meeting is the place where all believers come together to carry out these essential functions that have been given to the church. The men are the leaders in what takes place in the church. And I'm not going to belabor that. We've been down that trail uh, and I hopefully made that point, and, and it is important, but we've uh, seen it already. And, and D, certain vital elements were assured. Here's where I've talked about the components of the church meeting, but when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when it talks about two or no more than three, it's, it's giving a sense of proportion because these things all need to take place. You've got one meeting that's going to occur, if there is a disproportionate participation, if the prophets or the tongue speakers or whoever it was, if they were to take more than their fair share of that meeting, then it's going to be trouble because there are other vital elements that cannot be, uh, cannot be observed to the benefit of the body. So while there is not a rigid structure, there is a, a protection built in that says there is a limit to how much of any kind of participation should take place uh, 
so that all of the elements can be done. I, I was listening in particular to Bob this morning when he said there's a loose schedule. And actually, that pretty well conveys what, what I understand as well. We have set out in our bulletin a, a, a schedule which is a, a, an expectation of the things that we believe need to happen. And nobody, you know, as you know, in the meetings doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, uh, chop somebody down at the exact moment that that time is supposed to end. But it's a guideline to say to us, we have other things to do. We have prayer to do. And so that needs to be uh, preserved. There was order but no rigid structure. Participation was spirit-led. That It just seems to me that that's very clear within the context, especially of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But spiritual gifts were given, and the Spirit is the one who exercises the headship of Jesus Christ, and he directs and leads within the context of that church meeting. It's not something that is closely, tightly, humanly orchestrated. Now, you got to start and you got to stop. And, and that's Bob's job this morning. Bob's job was to start it and his job was to stop it. Now, if I include the whole meeting, then somebody ought to be shutting me down here in a few minutes too. But there, there ought to be, there needs to be a beginning. There needs to be an end. And we have sort of designated that. Within those confines, we have suggested periods of time where the things that need to occur should occur but we give flexibility and we don't tightly orchestrate those things. And there is broad participation, as I understand it, not a few selected, let's call them paid-for people who do all of the leading, but there is this broad participation that takes place. Okay, H, next frame. There was both systematic teaching, apostolic doctrine, and spontaneous participation. I want to lean on that for a bit because it just seems to me that some want to go to one extreme and some want to go to the others. In most churches today, most denominational structured churches, you have people who are paid to participate. Uh, They are are assigned to participate, and most of them are paid for that. They are assigned a certain task, but... Uh, so that you don't really have the opportunity for someone to say, as, as our text said, if someone receives a revelation, then the person's to sit down. Can you imagine? Even here, it would be a little surprising, but it's possible that somebody would say, uh, Bob, I think the Lord has something for me to say. It would seem to me that my job would be to sit down and, and we ought to listen to what the Lord has to say. So that there is... Uh, this, this spontaneity factor built in. We don't know as leaders exactly what the Spirit of God has for us as a church on a given day. And so we look to the Lord to lead through what we would call spontaneous leading of people as the Spirit guides them. So you have this spontaneous participation on the one hand, and you have what I would call scheduled participation which doesn't seem to me to be inconsistent with what Paul was doing with the Ephesians and so on, where there is systematic teaching, but there is also the spontaneous participation that takes place. Uh, There is, I I say, an element of evangelism, but I, I, I personally do not see in the gathering of the church that that is an evangelistic meeting, primarily. Now, 
Paul talks about if, if, if someone who is an unbeliever comes in and he observes the tongue speaking without interpretation, he's going to walk away saying, they're crazy. And, and, and if someone prophesies, he says, then the thoughts of their heart are exposed, they are convicted of their sin, and they may be drawn in faith. So I believe it is very possible that there may be an unbeliever who comes and through what is said and perhaps even more importantly, the gospel that is portrayed uh, every Sunday, that through that proclamation, somebody may come to faith. But it's not the primary purpose. As I understand Ephesians chapter 4, it is the edification of the saints, the building up of the body for the work of ministry, and the glorification of our Lord Jesus Christ. So edification glorification would be the primary focuses and evangelism would, I guess I would call it a fringe uh, benefit. And, and finally, the Lord's table was a central focus in the church meeting. That's, that's my way of understanding it, that the Lord's table was really the, the center point. And I think that was one of the things in the emails that you and I were reading this week. It's really about him. It's about Christ. And everything ought to be focused that way. If it isn't about Jesus and it isn't about his cross and it isn't about his atoning death and his victorious resurrection and his power for us, then I don't know what it's about. And so every week as we sit here, and in some ways we ought to be in this service, we ought to leave the elements there on the table because it's still about him. And so the Lord's Supper is central. And that's why, if you will allow me to do so, I'd like to shift my focus now to that element. We've talked indirectly about the church meeting uh, at various other occasions, but I'd like to focus on the Lord's Supper uh, for the rest of our time. This is I'm going to I'm going to tiptoe through these tulips quickly, but I'm talking about the backdrop of this as the the, the meaning of a meal. And, and I, when I started looking through the Old and New Testament, I, I have more instances than I can put on one page of significant meals. And so the eating of a meal, uh, it, especially in the Middle Eastern context, is a very, very important thing, or the non-eating of a meal. Whereas with us, uh, you know, it's TV dinners and, 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 and McDonald's and whatever, and, and our meals are not, <laughs> they're just not what they used to be. Maybe they're not what they ought to be. But uh, let's talk about some instances of uh, the eating of a meal. Obviously, it all started with the wrong meal, and that was with uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, the forbidden fruit. Exodus chapter 12 very significant meal, the Passover that is observed and the celebration that took place in the context of the Lord passing by uh, the, the Israelites but taking the firstborn of all the unbelievers. Uh, the meal that Moses has with his elders, this is just an amazing meal in Exodus, 20, uh, Exodus uh, chapter 24, verse 11, where Moses and the elders go up and, and they're somehow in the presence of God and there's this just amazing uh, f- uh, sort of preview of things to come and, and they actually do this and, and live. Uh, the worship of the golden calf was also a meal. They ate, they drank, they rose up to play. And so one of the significant themes in the Old Testament is not participating in the feasts of, of those 
who are into idolatry. There were always those counterpart feasts that would draw people away. The, uh, the clean and the unclean distinctions. When you think about the Old Testament law, Tom's back there smiling because I'm prompting all this class material here that you ought to be hearing. But when you think about the clean and the unclean, it regulated not only what you ate, but who you ate with. Is that not true? And so this was huge in terms of these food laws and the, the, the change then that occurs in Mark chapter 7, Acts chapter 10 and 11, and, and, uh, and the issues that have to do with table fellowship. So serious is this matter that in Galatians chapter 2, Paul has to rebuke Peter for who he does not eat with. So his actions at the dinner table are considered uh, a serious denial of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and therefore his strong uh, rebuke and response. The Israelites, we are told in Deuteronomy in a number of places, when they would partake of these feasts, they were going to partake in Jerusalem in the presence of the Lord. Now, in my opinion, that is nothing compared to what we have today. But it was a foreshadow of the fact that you were... Remember the song in our, in, our, in our little brown hymnal, God and man at table have sat down? Well, they were just kind of hoping for that and seeing shadows of that in the Old Testament. And we now, of course, through our Lord Jesus Christ, experience that in such a marvelous, marvelous way. Psalm 23, when it describes the Lord preparing a table for us in the midst of our enemies. And, and that is just the warmest, fuzziest thought that the psalmist could have, other than a sheep thinking about good grass. Uh, It's a beautiful psalm. Psalm 41, it's Judas. He doesn't name Judas, but it says, the one who is sitting at his table betrays him. In a sense, the ultimate transgression of table manners and hospitality, but it's foreshadowing uh, uh, Judas. Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. He determines first and foremost that he will not be defiled by what he eats. And it seems to me that that sets a stage, a moral platform uh, for his future uh, ministry. Uh, well, we could go on and on, but, but look, look at just some of the ones uh, farther down. In, in uh, Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 16, and in Luke chapter 12, verse 37, Jesus talks about heaven in banquet terms. And Jesus says, actually, those who were faithful, they're going to sit at the table and I am going to serve them. So that heaven, in one, in one set of imagery, heaven is, is just this wonderful, huge banquet that goes on and on for eternity, sitting at the Lord's table forever. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, church discipline now requires one not to be at the Lord's table. So sin now cuts one off from one of the greatest privileges a Christian can ever enter into and enjoy. But now think about Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But if we hear and we open the door, then the fellowship that is described is the fellowship of sitting down with our Lord Jesus at a meal. It's one of the great high privileges. The last two that I'll mention here are Revelation 19 and uh, 9 and, and verses 17 and 18. Now, these are two very different meals. 
two different banquets. We might call the first one the, the wedding banquet. That's this wedding celebration where our Lord is joined together forever with his bride. And we have that wedding celebration, those wonderful things associated with food, associated with weddings. The next one is not such a wonderful thing. You might call that the banquet of the buzzards. That's the one. I need to read the text, folks. This is not really stretching. It calls them birds, but I think they're buzzards. But it's talking about the feast that is going to happen where the buzzards, the birds, are going to eat the bodies of those who are the enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the final end of all things is described in these two banquet terms. And, uh, and to me, that, that sets the stage then for the significance of our Lord Jesus and the... Uh, and the Lord's table for us. Some observations about the Lord's table. It was the fulfillment of the Passover. It was the fulfillment of the Passover. So when you read in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, about the observance of this Lord's Supper, what you see is this, this conversion where there is the last Passover, but since our Lord Jesus Christ is the Lamb which is slain, then the old Passover is fulfilled, and now what you see is the newness of the Lord's table. It does raise some questions in my mind about those who would make more emphasis on the old than on the new. It seems to me that what you see is that Jesus has sort of closed out that chapter. Not that there can't be benefit to it, but I think it ought not to take prominence over the Lord's Supper, which is what our Lord instituted there as he closed out the Passover. The Lord's table is the celebration of the new covenant. And I want to land on the word celebration just simply to say it's not true, as I have heard it said, that the Lord's Supper is a funeral. A funeral is a very different thing, folks. We remember our Lord's death in the light of his resurrection. And so we are not mourning. We are celebrating the death of our Lord and the inauguration of the new covenant through the shedding of his blood. See, it is something our Lord Jesus greatly desired. I'm going to come back to this in a different way. But I've always puzzled over that. Have you not? When our Lord Jesus says to his disciples in Luke chapter 22, I have greatly desired to keep this fest, this feast with you. And, and I'm thinking about the circumstance. Here Jesus is just hours from the cross. And so he's celebrating, in a sense, the anticipation of his death. Ugh. I, I, that's like me celebrating going to the dentist and knowing I'm not going to get any Novocaine. I, I don't know. I, I just have trouble looking forward to that. And thinking about that meal, where at least for a little while Judas will be present, and the rest of the time the disciples are going to be clueless, and they're arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest. And I'm thinking, what is so great? Our Lord delighted to be with his disciples in the light of what he was going to do in spite of their lack of understanding about that. And what I'm really getting to is our Lord especially delights in being with his people at that table. There is something special about the Lord's Supper and our Lord Jesus being present with his people, as I understand it. D, the Lord's table was observed daily or weekly? Not monthly, not quarterly, not annually. And and I would say this. 
It seems to me that, that there are some texts where, where when, you use, when you find the expression breaking of bread, it may well be just a, it may be just saying, let's have a meal. Sometimes you may say that to somebody, Let, let's go break bread, let's have a meal. But it seems to me that what happened very often, especially in the early days of the New Testament church was that, that the meal uh, was such an integral part of the Lord's Supper that, that you had all of the elements there. I'm assuming that they had wine at the table and bread at the table. And so when you read, for instance, the description of our Lord Jesus in Luke 22, you see more than one cup that is being drunk. And, and what you find is in the context of those things, he takes these symbols and observes the Lord's Supper. But it, it would appear to me uh, that, that when people met for dinner, they may have just naturally celebrated our Lord's death as a part of that meal. And they didn't, they, they didn't think anything else of it, just like our Lord had done at the Passover. E, it is a command. When our Lord Jesus says in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, this be doing in remembrance of me, that's an imperative, it's a command, and it's a present, which seems clearly to say to me, this is something you need to keep doing until I come. So this is not something to be taken lightly. And, and for me, I puzzle at those who feel somehow free to just spread it off as distant as, as they wish. Uh, and, and for people to say, that is, uh, it, it's boring. Well, one of the reasons communion is boring for a lot of people is because in most churches, it's the same people who do the same thing every time they do it. It's not like our meeting where we don't know who's going to break the bread, who's going to pass out the cup, what the context of that meeting is going to be. So uh, anybody to say that's boring, all I got to say is brace up, folks. You got eternity to do it. Uh, so if it's boring now, folks, we're just warming up for the big time, which is going to come. F, it is a remembrance of our Lord's death and a proclamation of his death. So it seems to me that there is the sense in which there may well be unbelievers, uh, that there is something taking place in that which is an outward proclamation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. G, misconduct at the Lord's table is a very serious offense. Would you not agree? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, some of you are sick and some sleep, Paul says, because of misbehavior at the Lord's Supper. So we need to rightly estimate the person of our Lord Jesus and his presence at that table. H, the Lord's table was observed as part of a full meal. I'm going I'm to say this several times because I, I, the more I think about this and the more I see the way a meal is important in the Old Testament and the New, I'm not really sure that we can get the full significance of the Lord's Supper uh, the way we do it. And, and I'll, uh, let me just give you one illustration. I remember a child, and this may have happened more than once, but one of the children, when they, when they were sitting in the, in the, out there in the pews, before we partook of the Lord's table, they said, when are we going to have the snacks? Now, all little kids miss it. I, I don't, I, that doesn't bother me. But, but nobody said that when you had 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The reason people got drunk and the reason people overindulged was because there was a table filled with food. 
the other day when we were observing communion and talking about the sufficiency of the work of Christ. Man, if the sufficiency of Christ is hardly represented by, you know, a little tiny piece of a cracker and a little bit of grape juice, it looks like we're rationing the stuff. And so it seems to me that in the context of a meal where you have a bountiful table there and you are partaking of that, that is saying he bountifully supplies. Now, I'm not trying to rock the boat too much other than to say this. If I had my way, I would say every month or so, I would observe communion as a part of a meal. I'm not sure it's workable every week. I'm not sure it's workable. But I would do it enough that we said to ourselves, when we had the little cracker piece, said to ourselves, you know, this is not really it. It's bigger than this. I'm not so sure. And I know there are those who have, who have made a bigger point of this fact of observing it in the context of a meal. And probably as well, I would say, when churches were small and they met in houses, it was a whole lot easier. I mean, can you imagine a megachurch <laughs> having communion as a part of a meal? Ha! Huh. It just blows my mind. But in the context of, of the, the, the small house church, it was easy. You could do it every week and not really break a sweat at all. Uh, the symbolism of the, the, uh, of the Lord's Supper. Uh, I, I sort of keep pressing this, but it seems to me that the bread is not a symbol of our Lord's death. It is a symbol of our Lord's perfection. And I made a point that only 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and only in some text does it say, my body is broken. It says it's given for you. And so it isn't so much the thrust that our Lord Jesus Christ's body was broken. It was that his blood was shed, in my, in my opinion. It's his body was perfect. If the lamb that was slain was not without flaw, then the sacrifice was of no value. And so what we're seeing in the bread is the symbol that says Jesus was without sin. That is amazing. And I think we need to make more of that in, in, in communion is he is the sinless son of God. And that's what makes the shedding of his blood so powerfully uh, effective in our lives. So the bread signifies our Lord's perfection, the wine, his atoning death. Eating and drinking of the emblems, it seems to me, is speaking of our participation. It is a way of enacting our involvement, our participation in the work which Christ has done. And the meal itself is just a picture of the joy and the fellowship and the intimacy that we have with him and with one another. So a couple of concluding remarks before whoever the timekeeper is pulls my switch. Uh, I, I'm, I'm inclined to say, from what I've been studying, that our division of the morning mentally is probably not best. Uh, I think what we've... Uh, not, not, the, not the segments of it, but our mental way of thinking about it. And I've done this too. I've called what takes place during the first hour and a half the meeting of the church. Sometimes I'll call it the, the Lord's table. But it seems to me that the meeting of the church is the whole morning. That's, that's the way it was when the church gathered 
All these things took place. Yes, there was the, the, the celebration of the Lord's table. Yes, it was a focus of, of the people. Yes, there was spontaneous participation by, by many men in, in the body. But it seems to me to, to, to segregate off what I'm doing here and now as something that's distinct from that meeting is not right. Because what you see in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and Acts chapter 20 is there was also systematic teaching that was a part of that. So I guess what I would like to petition us to think about is to say the meeting of the church is Sunday morning from beginning to end. That's the meeting of the church. Various things take place within that. But let's, I guess, change our thinking, or at least I'm beginning to change mine. So there was preaching and spontaneous ministry that took place, not just one or the other. The whole time factor. Because they met once a week, they only had one day a week. They did it all. One call, one gathering, did it all. And, and, and the problem with, with what we're doing now is, and I'll just, I'll, I'll just be honest. I don't think that there is adequate time for spontaneous instruction to take place in, on Sunday morning. I'm, I'm not opposed to doing this. I think we need to do what, what I'm doing here and now. But in the actual uh, period where we're observing the Lord's Supper, there is not sufficient time for men to get up and to share something that God has laid on their heart that would take 5, 10, or 10 15, 20 minutes. We don't have the time. And the problem is with us, in, in my opinion. The problem is with us. We are so time-focused we're looking at that clock and we're saying, when is that guy going to quit? The turkey is burning in the oven. We're time-lapsed. And I don't think that was the way it was. The reason why the guy fell out the window was because they kept going until they were done. We're done when the clock hits a certain point in time. And I'm saying we're kind of wimps. Time-wise, we're wimps. In other parts of the world, I used to, when I was in India with Craig Nelson and I was speaking there, we were speaking in 45-minute segments, and they took me aside and Craig aside, and they said, Brothers, brothers, people are coming for two hours. They didn't come for 45 minutes. Give them more. Oh, glory, the Lord's come. You know, <laughs> this is, I mean, you just, whoever heard that before, preach longer. But we've just got a, a, a compressed mindset that we've got to do it quick. Somehow I think we need, to, we need to ask ourselves, is there something wrong with that picture? The Lord's table, I think, is best observed as a part of a meal. Uh, let me say one other thing. What I've said about how the church functioned, I think most everybody would agree with it. When you read those texts of Scripture, you say, that's how the church did it. The question is, you won't find it up there, by the way. I added this in. The question is, do we need to do what the New Testament church did? And all I can say is this. If you want to hire a driver to take you on a mountain road and he's going to tell you how close he can get to the edge, feel free. My, my thing is, hey, keep as close to the main part as you can and stay as far away from the edge. And, and to me, yes, we ought to try and imitate as much as possible what we see in the New Testament. Not everything. If you don't see Sunday school, you can't have it, all that. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying that we ought to take the practice of the New Testament and say, this is really good. Why aren't we doing it that way? But we've come a long way. And that's what all those emails were floating around about this week is saying, if you went to church and you read the New Testament, you'd wonder how the two ever got together. 
We ought to be looking at the New Testament itself as to how we can gather, and we certainly need to see it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. That's what our Sunday morning needs to be focused on. That's why we need to observe communion every week is it is about Christ. The Old Testament pointed ahead to him. All of eternity is going to fall before him, and we have the opportunity for a short period of time on Sunday morning to say, praise him. That's what it's about. And we'll do it for all eternity. Father, we thank you for the way that you have come in the person of the Lord Jesus, that he was the perfect lamb, that he gave himself for our sins, and that we have the privilege of gathering together as those who have been redeemed to worship him, to be strengthened, to be built up in our faith, and then to be sent out to a world that desperately needs him. Help us to be the kind of church we ought to be for your glory as well as for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.